Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Loose Ends, the Sing Family Tragedy, has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank betrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This is episode four, The Road to Hell. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. The Crown case against Max Seeker consisted of 16 points of circumstantial evidence, together with a confession Max Seeker allegedly made to a friend. After almost six years of investigations, 1,800 police job logs, more than 1,070 statements, over 14 hours of recorded video interviews with Max Seeker, hundreds of hours of recordings from covert listening devices planned in his home and car, no hard evidence was forthcoming. These are the 17 points of evidence that the Crown presented to the jury as proof Max Seeker was the killer. I have added what I consider the evidence reflects. I should add here that if anything did not fit the Crown case, it was considered a distraction. There were many distractions in this case. First, there was a significant body of evidence to prove that the killings occurred between 11.10pm on Easter Sunday and 7.15am the next morning and that the only evidence of the accused's whereabouts was his own word. In reality, the time of death of the victims could never be accurately determined. The pathologist placed time of death as somewhere between four hours and two days before the bodies were found, which means death may have occurred sometime Sunday, anytime on Monday, and even Tuesday morning. The Crown relied on telephone and internet interaction by the Singh children or the lack thereof, to settle on the time of death as being between 11.10pm on the Sunday night and 7.15am on the Monday morning. An extraordinarily small window of 8 hours in a period of some 40 hours. And the victims did stop texting and using the internet after the Sunday night. But does that mean they were dead? Was it possible a night caller intervened in their lives? The sighting by the painter next door around 9.30am on the Monday morning, seems extremely relevant. Or was it just another distraction? If it were confirmed that death occurred after 7am on the Monday, it would be very problematic for the Crown, as Max Seeker had an alibi for most of the balance of 32 hours. The Crown also relied on the extensive water damage to the house to suggest the spa had been overflowing for a long time. But in evidence, the insurance assessor suggested the damage could have been caused by overflowing water 
from somewhere between 12 and 24 hours. He compared it to a hose coming off a dishwasher or washing machine and water flowing for an extended period. And was the spa water temperature consistent with the spa having been running from 12 midnight on the Sunday and the bathroom hot and humid? Second, that the accused was the only one who it can be shown was expected to be at the house after 11.10pm that night. By comparing Max Seeker's previous nocturnal secret visits to Neilma, Max would travel to Neilma's house after the one ring. On that Sunday night, just before 9pm, Neilma messaged Max Seeker, Well, see you later tonight and then chat. I think I'm coming down with something. Feeling a day before you get sick will give the one ring. That was a strong inference Max Seeker would be visiting her that night. And on those nights that he visited, the alarm system would not be armed. And the alarm system was not armed that night. But there the comparison stops. Seeker did not message her to say he was on his way, nor message her that he was outside and have her open the door, as he did on previous visits. Seeker was a prolific texter. For him not to message Neilma is indicative that perhaps he did not go to the house that night. He told police he believed he was expected to go there that Sunday night, but he didn't. He told them he spoke with Neilma and she said she was unwell. There was, and is, reliable and independent evidence from Marcia and Lisa L, who you will hear more about later, that supported Max Seeker's word that he was at home at least until 1am on the Monday morning. Two independent witnesses but you have not heard of them before because the Crown did not call them, nor did the defence. There was evidence of a person or persons knocking on the front door of the Singh house at about 8.30pm on that Easter Sunday night, the night caller. The identity of that visitor or visitors was never established, and he, they, never came forward, despite the media firestorm that followed this gruesome crime. If the visitor were a friend of one of the victims, and it was an innocent visit, would they not contact police? What was the purpose of that late-night caller? Did he, they, stay, leave, return later? Third, that Neilma likely believed that the accused was suffering from an inoperable and terminal brain tumour. It is difficult to understand how this was relevant at trial. Neilma Singh's belief, or not, in the brain tumour story, has no relevance as to whether Max Seeker was at her house on that night. It is the Crown case that had Max Seeker not had said he had a tumour, Neoma would have had nothing to do with him, that she was breaking the relationship off. It is difficult to know the actual truth of the matter. She was lying to her family, including her sister. They had no idea she was back seeing Max Seeker. I do not believe it is possible to come to any conclusion regarding their relationship without independent confirmation. They were seeing each other, and therefore the brain tumour is irrelevant. Fourth, that the alarm was not armed, prayer sheets printed, and Neilma's being in a nightshirt wearing no underwear. That was correct. On previous occasions when Max visited, the alarm was not armed. The alarm may not have been set because the dog was known to wander and set off the alarm, or because the night caller who arrived at 8.30pm stayed or returned within the following one to three hours. 
If the visitor mentioned above stayed, that may explain the alarm not being armed. The family said Neilma hated the cold and would not just wear a nightshirt to bed, more often a tracksuit. There is strong evidence Neilma was wearing more than a t-shirt prior to her death. Just because Max Seeker looked at prayer sheets on a prior occasion, his fingerprints were found on one, does not equate to these prayer sheets having been printed for him. Printing out prayer sheets was apparently something the Sings did each week. Fifth, that Kunal and Siddi were killed in their beds. Evidence is consistent with both victims being killed in their beds. It was claimed Neilma was killed first. It is difficult to conceive how, if Neilma was involved in a violent altercation with her attacker, Kunal and Siddi remained passively asleep in their beds. But the order of the deaths was speculation on the part of the Crown, and there was no evidence Neilma was killed first. Sixth, there was no motive for either Kunal or Siddi to have been killed, apart from a desire to cover up evidence concerning the killing of Neilma. There is no evidence as to the order in which the siblings were killed. This submission was no more than speculation at the time. Seventh, the fact that Neilma was strangled suggests that her assailant came without a weapon and was known to Neilma. It is difficult to believe that if Max Seeker killed the Singh siblings, that there would be no physical evidence such as DNA, blood or injuries connecting him to the crime. No blood or bleach was found on Max Seeker, his clothing, or in the Seeker cars. Unless Seeker removed his clothing and drove home in the nude, it is difficult to conceive how no blood or bleach was found, and more importantly why, when a person takes the time to clean the crime scene and dispose of his clothing, would return one bloodied garden fork to the garage. It was a crown case Seeker killed Neilma in a fit of passion. But before she dies from strangulation, he goes down to the garage, collects a garden fork, returns to her room and bludgeons her, and brings bleach in a bucket with him in the event he flies into a fit of rage and kills Neilma. 8. The garden fork was used in the attacks, or at least some of them. It was situated in a place in the garage that would be unlikely to be obvious to a stranger. A more likely explanation is entry was gained through that door, the fork was found on the way in, and the killer listened at the door for movement or noise within the house. A face-slash-ear impression was found on the door from the laundry leading to the interior of the house. The owner of that impression was never identified. Max Seeker was eliminated as being the person who placed it there. A further face-print-ear impression was found outside the door to Neilma's bedroom. A metal trident... A three-pronged spear was in the upstairs prayer room. Max Seeker was aware the trident could be located there. For a time, it was considered a possible murder weapon. In fact, could not be discounted. Yet on the Crown case, Max Seeker obtained the garden fork from the downstairs garage after partially strangling Neilma, when the trident was closer and more easily accessible. The use of the garden fork rather than the trident suggests the killer was unaware of the existence of the trident. Fingerprints were found in the bedroom which have never been eliminated. This and evidence of other activity at the murder scene suggests the involvement of persons other than Max Seeker is simply ignored and or dismissed by the prosecution as a distraction. 9. The impressions on the stairs were caused by bleach 
and combined with other evidence, lead to the conclusion that the use of bleach was associated with the killing in some manner, probably to clean the floor. The presence of Neoma's blood on the wall adjacent to the stairs and the bloodied footprint in her room strengthens the submission. This is not disputed and the comment appears correct. There is nothing to connect Max Seeker to that point. 10. The bleached impressions on the stairs were from feet and the lessening concentrations of bleach as moving up the stairs is consistent with socks having been worn. This is not disputed. The impressions are consistent with socks being worn. Max Seeker could not be identified as making the impressions, nor could he be eliminated as making the impressions. 11. The killer was obedient to the house rules about not wearing shoes upstairs. The Crown asserted that Max Seeker was obedient to the house rules of not wearing shoes upstairs. Yet there was a pair of bloody sandals found in Neomo's room. Vijay Singh owned these sandals, which were usually stored in the garage a size 8 shoe. But the family never wore sandals or shoes on carpet or upstairs ever, according to both Shirley Singh and Vijay Singh. Max Seeker wore a size 12 shoe. So, on the one hand, Seeker is obedient to the house rules by taking his shoes off and walking up the stairs in socks only, apparently after socks came into contact with bleach, to kill the victims but disobedient to the house rules by wearing the public sandals, the stairs, which he would be unlikely to fit his feet into. 12. Of the items missing, many were items of a special sentimental value concerning Neilma, and included the pendant given by the accused on Valentine's Day 2002 and the diary in which Neilma recorded matters concerning the accused, which he knew were stored in Neilma's drawers. Evidence of these missing items was given by Mrs Singh. It is possible some of the items were missing prior to their passing and that information was unknown to Shirley Singh. None of these items appear to have been found. None of these items were found in Max Seeker's possession. The gold necklace was owned by Shirley Singh and was of no sentimental value to Neilma or Max Seeker. Two watches belonging to Neilma were missing. One was found elsewhere in the house. Many months later, the other watch was found under the front passenger seat of her car. Four single earrings were stolen, one each of four sets. Were they stolen or lost? Five or six photos of Amit were on the wall in Neilma's room, according to Shirley Singh, at the time she left for Fiji. Two remained after the crime. On that evidence, Max Seeker stole some photos, but left two behind. Painted stone given to Shirley by Siddy was stolen. A purse owned by Siddy and holding her house key and two ornaments was stolen. It is difficult to show how those items were connected to Max Seeker. Some 20 items in total were missing. 13. Although the prosecution did not suggest what the reason was as to why the accused strangled Neela with murderous intent, the tumultuous and at times volatile nature of their relationship meant that sudden violence was feasible. A reading of the evidence confirms the relationship was tumultuous and at times volatile. The relationship between Max Seeker and Vijay Singh was also tumultuous, and also between Max Seeker and Shirley Singh. 
Neoma was an active and willing participant in a relationship with Maxika, which was based on the premise that it must be kept secret from her family, not more. I would have thought, if the Crown alleges a relationship was tumultuous and volatile, the onus would be on them to prove that. Of course, in cases where they cannot, as in this case, the go-to position is, it is not necessary to provide a motive for the crime. There is absolutely no evidence of Max Seeker having been violent towards Neelma Singh, or indeed any of the other women with whom he had relationships. In fact, to the contrary, the evidence was that he had not shown signs of any propensity towards physical violence in any of those relationships. His ex-wife confirmed he was never violent to her or their children. Other partners spoke highly of them. He was a lot of things, but violent was not one of them. 14, 15 and 16. There was good reason to doubt that the accused was legitimately expected at Grass Tree Close on the 22nd of April 2003. 15. The accused arrived about 2pm and stayed in the house for too long before notifying anyone of the bodies to be consistent with an unexpected chance discovery of the deceased. 16. He lied about the time he arrived at the house because he knew that if he told the truth he would implicate himself in the killings. There is compelling evidence to the contrary. Seeker had three children in his car when he arrived at the Bridgman Downs house. He had stated the intention days earlier of going to Bribey Island on that day and inviting Neilma and City to go with them. He had previously taken his children to the Singh house on at least two occasions, the last being Christmas 2002. Had the Crown called Melina P, there would have been further confirmation regarding Seeker's movements on that Tuesday. The defence also failed to call Melina. The time spent by the prosecutor in addressing the jury on this deliberate lie serves to emphasise the importance placed on the assertion by the Crown. 17. He made statements to a trusted friend that amount in all the circumstances to a confession to involvement in the killings. This is a complicated issue, and her evidence was very contentious. Max Seeker denies making any admissions and disputes he said he felt remorseful. A year after the events in question, Ms B made a 50-plus page statement. It is not practical to read that statement out here. I have pondered long and hard the most practical and fairest way to present her evidence in this podcast. I have decided to read out the opening address by the Crown Prosecutor to explain the Crown position of her evidence. I will follow that with remarks made by the judge in his summing up to the jury regarding her evidence. You will find lengthy videos on YouTube regarding the evidence Ms B gave if you wish to explore the matter further. The following are the prosecutor's words, but not his voice. Whilst I'm about to outline to you evidence of what the Crown says is a confession that he made to the killing of Nima, and hence in the context of the allegations to the killing of the others, we say that you can reach the conclusion of guilt to the standard of beyond reasonable doubt by reference only to the circumstantial case. Nonetheless, the evidence of Andrea B will afford you an extra, albeit we say unnecessary degree of comfort in reaching that conclusion. And let me speak to you about that now. Ms B was a friend of the accused. She'd first met him in about the late 1980s. 
She worked in the accused parent's business. They lost contact in the mid-90s. She made contact with him after seeing some television coverage in which he was featured concerning the killings. They spoke, emailed and sent texts to each other over the next five years. Most of the communications, or at least a large proportion of it, dealt with the killing. You'll hear from Ms B that some months after she started speaking to Max Seeker about the killings, she decided to write a book. Max Seeker was aware of this. You'll hear that on a number of occasions he said things to suggest that he thought she was talking to police about their conversations anyway. Nevertheless, he continued to talk to her. Typically their conversations followed something of a question and answer format rather than a free-flowing conversation and centred upon what a killer may have done and why. As I say, even though he accused her of working for the police, he continued to talk to her. There are lengthy periods over these five years in which there was no contact between the two. Periods of months at a time, and, indeed, by 2008, their meetings were fairly sporadic. They arranged to meet on the 16th of March of 2008. That's the eve of his birthday. He's born on the 17th of March. She didn't turn up at the arranged time. He contacted her to make sure she was coming. When they did meet, she noticed that he was drinking alcohol. Now the degree of intoxication and how it affected him will be a matter for you to decide. On the Crown case, he was affected, but only comparatively mildly, but nonetheless, we accept that he was affected to some degree. At least on the Crown case, whatever degree he was affected was not such as to make what he said that night unreliable. He was unguarded in what he said and he asked Ms B whether she was going to grill him, meaning, it would seem, whether the conversation was going to deal with the killing. She said it would. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They spent several hours together that night. Towards the latter part of the period, she asked if he was remorseful for what had happened. He said words to the effect that he cried about what he did and that if he could take it back, he would. After a little more conversation, he said words to this effect. He asked if you knew how hard it is to kill someone when they ask you to, please don't. I paused to note, the cause of Neilma's death was strangulation. There was other conversation that night before she dropped him back home, and about that time, around about the time he was getting out of the car, he asked if he was, and again I quote, busted. And he said something to the effect that it was all right if it was her. She said he wasn't. Given all of his earlier knowledge of her writing a book and his expressed belief that she was working for the police on the Crown case, he, at the very least, must have understood that there was a chance his comments would be reported to authorities. The Crown case is that that evidence is an admission of guilt. It's another layer of evidence which will go to prove the guilt of the accused man. Should for some reason you not accept that evidence, the guilt on our case is nonetheless proven by the circumstantial case that I spent some time outlining to you. The trial judge had this to say about Ms B's evidence. 
These are the judge's words, but not his voice. As no one claims to have seen the accused kill the Singh children, the case is entirely circumstantial if the evidence of Ms B concerning what the accused told her on the night of the 16th of March is put aside. The prosecution relies on what Ms B says the accused told her, especially on the night of the 16th of March 2008, as supporting an inference of guilt. Before relying on such evidence against him, you must be persuaded of three things, namely that Ms B accurately recounted what was said to her, what he said amounted to an admission of having killed, any such admission is the truth of the matter. The weight to be accorded to Ms B's evidence concerning what she says the accused told her on the night of 16th of March 2008, as well as about other events to which she testified, is, as with all evidence, for you to decide. I must warn you, however, that there are matters necessarily to be taken into account by you in considering her evidence. First, there is evidence concerning Ms B's health that, depending on how you assess it, may bear on your evaluation of the reliability of her testimony generally. The early diagnosis caused Ms B stress and anxiety, including fear of her death. Ms B acknowledged that, in situations where she is stressed and nervous, as when giving evidence, there may be blanks and bits out in her memory. At the 2006 CMC hearing, when she felt under stress because of her concern that the CMC could communicate the, to the accused information she disclosed at that hearing, she had said she suffered from a degenerative disease that affected her memory and caused her to become easily confused, as well as senior moments, such as going to the fridge, opening it and wondering why she was there. Such things may affect Ms B's capacity to give reliable evidence. Because of that risk, you must approach an assessment of her evidence with special care. Rely on it only if, having considered the risks of its inaccuracy, you are persuaded that it is truthful and accurate. Apart from the reliability of her testimony generally, there are particular reasons to be cautious about accepting Miss B's account of things she testified that the accused said to her on the night of 16th of March 2008. In assessing Ms B's evidence concerning that night, take into account that an untruthful admission may be easy for a witness to manufacture, hard for an accused to deny, and difficult to test in court. The alleged admissions were not recorded by any device. There is no independent confirmation of what was said. She may not have accurately recalled or in testifying repeated what the accused said. Obviously, you cannot assess the accused demeanour on the night, which may make it harder to assess the significance, including the truth, of what it was said. Ms B's lengthy statement apparently makes no reference to the accused having been drinking. Ms B's notes of the conversation do not refer to the segments relating to remorse and whether he was busted. Ms B did not report the conversation to the police for 13 days, about two weeks, and when she telephoned Zitney to say what had occurred, she was affected by alcohol. In a recorded conversation Ms B had with the accused on 22nd of April 2008, he did not acknowledge that he was the killer, nor did he accept that he had indicated as much on the 16th of March. If, having considered those warnings, you accept that Ms B's account of the conversation is essentially reliable, two further issues arise concerning the significance of the evidence. The first is whether 
what the accused said constitutes an admission that he is the killer? In approaching that question, no doubt you would assess such words as you accept. He spoke in context and in the light of other evidence. The second is whether the admission to killing, if that is what the accused said amounts to, is the truth of the matter. In other words, whether what the accused said to Miss B about killing is true. Might what he may have said on the topic have been untrue? False confessions to serious offences are not unknown. Might he have told Ms. B that he was the killer if that were not true? His state of sobriety needs to be borne in mind. It seems that he'd been drinking when she encountered him on the night of 16th of March 2008. A jury, with all its accumulated experience, scarcely needs a judge to point out that consumption of alcohol can matter to the reliability of what a man may say. That he might possibly have been fantasising about his actions or merely engaging in more scenario talk, although Ms B refuted that notion. A Brisbane court has been told alleged triple murderer Max Seeker threatened to kill one of his friends if she spoke to police about the deaths of the Singh siblings on Brisbane's north. His friend told the Brisbane Magistrates Court Seeker spoke to her several times in the years following the Singh's deaths. Ms Roman said as she became increasingly uneasy about his possible involvement, she began talking to police. She said at a 2006 meeting with Seeker, he told her, if I ever find out you're talking to the detectives, I'll take you for a little drive. Ms Bowman told the court she had several conversations with Seeker on his bed. One in particular distressed her. He asked her whether she felt lucky that he'd never killed her. She said he moved closer, put his arm around her, she looked up and he was holding a nail file above her head. He said, I could have killed you back then, did you ever think about that? I could kill you right now. In another exchange, Ms Bowman told Seeker if he did kill the Sings, it would cost him the rest of his life, to which he replied, it's too late now. I asked Anne McMahon, a criminal profiler I know, if she would profile the offender for me in this case. Wikipedia describes criminal profiling as an investigative strategy used by law enforcement agencies to identify likely suspects and has been used by investigators to link cases that may have been committed by the same perpetrator. Anne's full report can be found on the Facebook page Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. And I'm talking to Anne now. Hello, Anne. How are you? Hi, Graham. I'm great. Thank you. And I appreciate what you've done for me on this case. I know how much work goes into profiling. I know how much work I have done on this case. So I have got an understanding of how much work you did on the case. It must have taken you hours and hours and hours. Yeah, it did. But it's one of my passions, Graham. So it's, uh, you know, I just, I love profiling. It's my big passion and my big interest. So no skin off my nose, as they say. <laughs> Well, thanks again for doing it for me. It's just fabulous. Before we get into it, can we talk about your criminology background? Sure. What would you like to know? Oh, if you can just tell me a bit about your history. I was, or am um, actually, a dispensing optician, funny enough, which uh, is maths and physics, which is not, not a passion. And in later life, when my boys had gone, I decided to do a degree in criminology and criminal justice, which I did at Griffith University. At the same time as that, I did a Cert three in investigative services with the Australian Security Academy. Well, congratulations on your degree. And can we talk about profiling in general? Sure. 
profile on us actually going back to the early 1900s, so 1888, when uh, Dr. Thomas Bond attempted to profile the personality of Jack the Ripper. Probably the more modern types of profile that we know now come from the behavioral science unit and um, the FBI's Academy at Quantico. I'm sure most of your listeners, as I've said before, would know this from the series The Mindhunter, which is based on the true story of how profiling started. And it was really spurred on because there was an increasing number of serial killings in the United States. And the behavioral science unit thought, you know, we've got to, we've got to do something and try and, you know, try and rein these people in. And it was really originally intended just to assist investigators in either shortening the list of suspects to a small subgroup or providing new avenues of inquiry. It's never really been said that, you know, the profile and this is going to find the guy or this is going to find the girl. It's never been said. It's kind of like we can reduce the suspect pool and this is likely the type of person. It's not, uh, it's not as uh, exact science by any means. The actual, the way that we do these type of profiles is, is called a non-methodic method or inductive method. And that, that basically means a generalization. So you're kind of saying with, with most people, if you have a group of people who have these characteristics, then this is the type of crime that they will be involved in and vice versa. So we can look mm. at types of crimes and uh, actions at the crime scene or behaviors at the crime scene. And we can look at those and say, in our experience and from past studies, we know that this has happened at a crime scene, that this is the type of person that may be involved. And you can also actually eliminate people, can't you? Yeah, yeah. And did you come to any conclusion as to how many offenders may have been involved in the Singh murders? I thought that there was only one. But in these types of this classification of this crime, it is often seen that there's more than one offender. Can we talk about that profile? Sure. What can you tell us? Let's start at the sequence of events. When you did a profile, you look at um, crime scene photographs and you try and work out what the actual sequence of events are. From what I've looked at, so this is in my opinion, I feel that Neoma was mad at the door either by answering the door to someone or by them gaining entrance into the garage and coming into contact with her at the bottom of the stairs. She's somehow been taken upstairs and she's then been dragged into her bedroom where clothes that she was wearing have been removed. She was then strangled to death in her bedroom. This uh, classification of the crime is a sex crime. And right. people will say, but there's no sign of sexual assault, which Dr. Lobi, the pathologist, has said. But there doesn't always have to be signs of sexual assault for it to be a sex crime. And the reason for that is that I am going, I'm going by uh, classification models from Douglas Ressler, Burgess, and Hartman, and their classification for a sexual assault. One of these five things need to have happened. Either the victim's attire or lack of attire, exposure of sexual parts of the victim's body, insertion of foreign objects into the victim's body cavity, or the evidence of sexual intercourse. 
So you need, one of these things need to have been in effect in a crime for it to be classified as a sexual motivation. So according to the FBI's crime classifications, is classified as a sex crime. So the fact that there was no evidence of actual sexual intercourse, that doesn't mean to say it wasn't a sex crime. Then I feel he has then gone to Kunal and while he's been lying in bed, he has been attacked over the head with a multi-bladed instrument and I think he was asleep because if he wasn't asleep, I'm sure there would have been a fight and there would have been evidence of a fight and mm-hmm. there wasn't. So I think That's right. he was, yeah. I I think he was asleep in bed. He has then gone into the master suite where the youngest thing was and same there, she's been attacked while asleep in her bed with a multi-bladed instrument to the head. The girls weren't. Can we talk about the offender characteristics here, Anne? Yep. I see you've classified the offender as aged 16 to late 30s. Max Seeker definitely falls within that category, but also probably 90% of killers would fall in that category, I think. Exactly, yep. Below average intelligence, uh, I have not met Max Seeker, but I don't think he falls into that category. No, I don't from what I've read. Socially inadequate, I don't believe he, he falls in that category either. No. Unskilled worker, he was a computer technician of some sort, which is a, I would class as, well, I would not class as an unskilled worker. Mm -hmm. Low birth order, yes, uh, he was the youngest of four children. Mm -hmm. The father's work unstable. Well, his father has been a restaurateur for many, many years, so I don't see that the father's work would be classed as unstable. Do you agree with that? Yep. Received harsh, inconsistent discipline in childhood. I don't think we can comment on that. Anxious mood during crime. I don't think we can comment on that either. No. The same with minimal use of alcohol. The offender lives alone. Well, Max Seek was living at home. He lives with his parents. The offender lives or works near the crime scene. Well, Well, if you say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Minimal interest in news media. I don't believe that. Fitz Seeker because my recollection was he was always in the media. He was popping up, up to, everywhere from what he, I remember. He was. He was popping yeah. up everywhere. Significant behavioural change. What do you mean there, before, during, after? After. 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 Which we can't, we don't know because we don't know. No. Nocturnal. I'll definitely say Seeker was nocturnal. Poor personal hygiene. Again, I haven't met him, but I don't believe that would fit him, mainly because he had a string of girlfriends and partners. Secret hiding places, I don't think we can comment on that. No. Usually does not date. That's definitely not Max Seeker. That's not, not. High school dropout, I don't know what year he went to. May use weapons of opportunity found at the crime scene. Well, the offender definitely did that, but I I don't see that you can sort of rule Max Seeker in or rule him out based on that point. No. And may take trophies. Well, apparently trophies or property was stolen, but again, you know, yeah. I don't think you can, you can really mean or out based on no. that. The fact that property has not been found, I think, is significant. Victims and crime scenes location familiar to him, well, that's definitely true of Max Seeker. Personalise his victims by covering the body. Again, I don't think we can really mean or out based on that. Returns to the crime scene, well, Max Seeker definitely went to the crime scene. Whether he went back to the crime scene is another point. According to the police, he went back to the crime scene, and I guess he's been convicted, so 
that means he did go back to the crime scene. May attend the victim's funeral. Yes, Max Seeker did attend the victim's funeral and he was asked to leave by the Singh family. May place in memoriam notice. Don't know. May turn to religion. Don't know. May keep diary or news clippings. Don't know. May change residence. I don't think that was the case. And may change job. Well, that wasn't the case as well. So my interpretation of that, Anne, is that the majority of those characteristics do not fit Max Seekers. What's your yeah. take on it? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Characteristics don't fit, but the behavior afterwards does fit. Not just the behavior, personalizes his victims by covering the body. Yes, the killer did. Returns to the crime scene. If it's not Max Seeker, we don't know if they did or not. If it's not Max Seeker, we don't know whether they attended the funeral. We don't know whether they placed in memoriam in the newspaper. So the behavior rather than characteristics fit. The characteristics mm. don't fit, but the behavior fits. Yeah. So whether it was Mark Zika or not, whoever has done this has taken trophies, has used a weapon of opportunity at the crime scene, has covered the bodies. That's just profiling. It kind of, you go down other rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah. All right, Anne, thanks once again for doing this profile for me. My pleasure. And as I said, uh, Anne's full report can be found on the Facebook page, Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. And that's it for Episode 4. Thank you for listening to The Road to Hell. Please join me again in Episode 5, The World According to Max, where I explore in detail the cases put forward by the Defence Council. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation to Bad Bassam for editing, mixing and mastering the episode. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Media clips courtesy of channels 7, 9 and 10. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode.